they could have found a better life somewhere else, but they came up here, and it must have been remarkable to come and have more freedom. I think they would have had a lot of racism, but we found the children in school, and there's nothing to, there's no indication yet that the, anybody complained about having the children in the school system in Dawson. And the same thing in Skagway. The two oldest girls were actually in the Skagway school system, and they seemed to fit it in quite nicely. This is Yukon North of Ordinary, the podcast. We share a more in-depth take on the most popular stories from our print magazine, showcasing the territory's extraordinary people, culture, and outdoors. I'm your host, Karen McCall. Thousands of people came to the Yukon during the Klondike Gold Rush of 1898. They came from all over Canada and the U.S. and from all different backgrounds. According to Canadian census data, there were 99 black people in the Yukon in 1901. But until recently, little was known about these individuals. A group of Yukoners has been working hard to change that. The Hidden History Society Yukon has been researching the stories of black and Asian Yukoners since 2000. Peggy Dorsey is one of its founding members. As a retired archives librarian, she knows where to go hunting for information. Today I'm talking to her about the research she's doing about the Aggie family. They arrived in Dawson City via the Chilkoot Trail from Skagway, Alaska during the gold rush. At the time, there were few non-Indigenous children in the North. Alonzo and Maddie Aggie brought their five children with them, Roy, Harry, Helen, Olive, and Sam. They are just one of two black families with children that Peggy has been able to find information about from that era. The other family is the Hunter family, who Peggy mentions in our chat. The first question I had for Peggy was about when the Aggies arrived in the Yukon. The family came into the territory in 18... No, I shouldn't say the family. Uh, Alonzo, who was the husband, the father of the uh, father, brought his two teenage sons with him in 1899. His wife and the three younger children were in Skagway, at that time, and the next year they showed up in the 1901 census of moving from Skagwick to um, Dawson. Who were they before they came to the Yukon? It looks like they were they were in Kansas at some point. Alonzo was actually born in Mississippi. His wife, Maddie, was born in Missouri, and they got married in 1881 in Kansas. Then... After the marriage, they moved to Colorado. I found them in the 1885 census there with two young children. The two oldest boys were born there. And then they may have moved around Colorado. Um, And all three of the younger children were born there. The last child born was 1896. Okay, and then a few years later, they, they showed up in Skagway. In the 1900 census, they showed up there um, under curative spelling, but they, they're the right family. For one reason or another, whoever put the name down spelt it A-G-G-E-E. So, took some looking. <laughs> I bet, yeah, I bet things like that are huge uh, You have to be uh, very flexible about spelling of names and nicknames and... Uh, anything you put in. So uh, we managed to get them to track that for Alonzo 
when he was in Colorado, started out as a porter, which I assume was with the railroads. Then uh, when he moved into, uh, no, not Dawson, Skagway, he was listed as a barber. His wife was uh, ran a, a laundry for a while. And the two young girls, there was a girl that was about 13, another one about eight, and they were in school. And the youngest boy, Sam, would have been about three, maybe four at that stage. So he was at home. So how unusual was it for like a family unit to come north during the gold rush? It's very rare. Um, most of the men that came up may have been married, but they came as single men. And if they made their jackpot uh, or established themselves in uh, in one of the major areas, they would bring their families up. But at that stage, the only two families that we found that were black were the Hunters, Charles and Lucille Hunter, with their daughter, uh, Teslin, lived in Grand Forks, and then the Agis, who brought their five children with them. Have you been able to find anything about what brought them north? No, we don't have any diaries or correspondence or anything like that. Most of what I've been able to find this year has been on the Internet, and it's uh, basic information like birth, death, marriage information. And sometimes you can make guesswork about what somebody was doing. The census detail from the first census was 1885 that I found them in an American one in the 1900s, and I found them down to 1940. But it's varied what information you get out of that, and then you have to backtrack and pray for the best. Sometimes you can make uh, inferences about why they came. I mean, I guess a lot of people came in search of a, a better life or some sort of prosperity. Yeah. Uh, the Klondike Gold Rush was a major... It was. My understanding is that there was a major depression going on, and a lot of people wanted easy money. They thought placer money would be a moneymaker, and it not for the miners. The people who made the money were the grocers, the barbers, <laughs> innkeepers, not the miners. They kept their money. The miners would lose it very easily. So for a whole family to take this huge trip because in those days from Colorado I guess they would have taken a train across the country and then jumped on a steamship like yeah. it would have been a long, long trip. trip but especially when you have an infant like the youngest boy Sam was born in 1896 uh, the family arrived in Skagway in 1898 and stayed there for about two years he would have been about maybe two years old at that stage so uh, that uh, would have been a major move for a child, for a young child anyway. Was there also, uh, because they were a black family, what, was there a lot of racism that they were dealing with? Is that another reason why they might have taken this trip? 1890s would have been about 20, 25 years after the Civil War in the States. 1865 is when the Civil War and the States abolished slavery. But they still had the gym laws and routines to deal with and depending on where you moved and how you moved um, they could have found a better life somewhere else but they came up here and it must have been remarkable to come and have more freedom I think they would have had a lot of racism 
but we found the children in school and there's nothing to there's no indication yet that the Anybody complained about having the children in the school system in Dawson. And the same thing in Skagway. The two oldest girls were actually in the Skagway school system. And they seemed to fit it in quite nicely. Yeah, some of the articles that you sent me were like the children participating in a cakewalk and and things like that. So, I mean, we don't know exactly, but it looks like they were involved yeah, and they were well, a well-respected family. They, when they left in 1913, I found um, a small notice in the White Horse Star um, talking to Alonzo, him saying that he was going to go back to Mississippi to visit family, first time in 30 years. Uh, he was considered a well-off black, and uh, he was going to come back with horses and keep on mining. Uh, he ended up... He came back, but he ended up in Alaska, and I'm not sure what he did in Alaska when he came back. But Sam, the youngest boy, the family must have had enough uh, money around, or, or he got scholarships, ended up in college in the States. And uh, then he ended up in the war, but that was it. And they seemed to have retired from, moved out of Alaska after the war and settled down in Washington State. So let's talk a bit more about their time in, in the Yukon. They made it uh, here in the early 1900s, and you said Alonzo, the father, was was a barber, which you said at the time was not a bad way to, to make a living. Yeah. Um, Alonzo, Roy, his oldest son, and Harry was the second son. They all came over uh, down the and through the river system. And then um, they seemed to establish the barber uh, shop first. And then 1907, they ended up mining. They had, between 1907 and 1909, they had three mining claims. So they did the barbering, similarly in the winters, when <laughs> at least warmer, and worked the mines in the rest of the year, I would assume, but I don't know. And then they were, must have been well enough off because the two girls, I found them by accident, uh, in Polk's, Polk's was a city directory all over North America. They had um, all the states covered and a good chunk of Canada. Um, I found them in the Washington State city directory in 1906. Helen was going to school. Olive was... Um, listed as a boarder, but I was soon young enough to be in school. And Harry was there as a barber. He must have had a house or something, and they just, with a shop attached, and that's how they supported the two girls in their education. The girls were in school up here. We found them in the 1901 uh, newspaper article as being, I think one was in grade two, the other was grade four, and then they must have had enough of they ran out of schooling or education and went down, sent the girls down to the States to finish their education up. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Wow, that's a big commute. <laughs> yeah, and also, if you're thinking race-wise, there weren't that many men up here for a young girl to get. And maybe the parents thought they were roughnecks or something and wanted the men to, <laughs> you know, parents. Meet some educated young men. Man with, uh, with uh, possibilities. <laughs> That's how my parents would have done it. And then 
far as I can tell from the newspapers, I've never seen another newspaper article given Sam's education. But he seems to have stayed with the public school system uh, until he left in 1913. But he was uh, accepted into um, Black College in Alabama. And it was supposed to be one of the better ones. And believe it or not, I got splashed all over the Alaskan papers that Sam was going <laughs> to college. Time for a short break. We'll be right back. Do you have a Yukon North of Ordinary hoodie yet? What about a t-shirt? A toque? Mug? Check out the full product line at the retail store in Whitehorse, located on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Steel Street across from City Hall. Limited products can also be ordered from northofordinary.com. And while you're there, don't forget to pick up a magazine subscription. And now, back to the episode. So it sounds like the Aggie family did get... They prospered in the North. Yeah. They were able to send their kids away to school. The troubles they had seemed to have started after they left. Um, the second son, Harry, was uh, killed in Seattle. He was running a barbershop and a pool room, and he was murdered. Uh, that was in 1917. And shortly after that, um, Sam was drafted by the U.S. Army in World War One. And he would have been, I think it was late in the fall when he signed his draft papers. So in, in, he never made it to Europe. I would assume it takes six months to a year to train. So he was in the States somewhere being trained. And by the time he got to the point where he was able to fight, I would assume, uh, November 1918 occurred. And he didn't have to go. Didn't have to go. Yeah, and the el- the eldest son Roy, um, he died shortly after that. Yeah, he died in May of 1901, or I guess before that. Yeah, before that, he died in May of 1901, and it was pneumonia in the St. Mary's Hospital in Dawson. But he was also a boxer and um, a runner, I believe. He was into the sports scene up here for a couple, for a year, maybe two years. Was was typhoid and uh, pneumonia? Was that a? Did that take a number of lives at that time? There was a lot of DCs, very primitive uh, living conditions, everything, and really cold snaps. If you're not used to being uh, double layered and everything else, you would get sick very fast. I imagine the long, dark winters would have been pretty tough in those days without, you know, the the central heating that we know of today and the well-insulated homes. Yeah, uh, chopping your own wood and everything else, yes. I think I saw in one of the documents you sent me that the son, Harry, was also quite a boxer. He was into boxing and running. He had, by 1907, he had the middleweight belt for the territory. And from what I can figure out from the newspaper articles, he moved around to his fight, so in Alaska and in uh, Yukon. I don't know if he fought outside, but he definitely had fights in both areas. Very well respected in that area. By 1913, the whole family had left the territory, is that right? For as we could tell, we're not quite sure when Helen or Ollie left. They could have stayed outside uh, after 1907, but uh, they... 
in the 1911 census, I could only find Maddie and Sam listed. So I assume uh, Harry and his father Alonso were working the mines or whatever, but there's no way of saying, but the girls, they were young enough to be married by that stage. But Helen got married in 1920. She was in her late 20s, I believe, when he, she was married, but married in B.C., not up here. Um, we're not. The only marriage I've been able to track for the younger girl, Olive, is in 1920 in Washington State. It sounds like a lot of work tracking all the family members to all these different places all over Canada and the U.S. How long has this work taken you so far? Well, I started it 20 years ago because I found a picture of Sam uh, on a hockey team. And it was very, for me, very un- norm- not normal. Um, I just did not think they would accept a, chi- a black child on a white hockey team. And the team was actually the city championship. Uh, and so that got me curious about them. And I picked it up here and there. It's only been the last six months or so that I've really focused on them. And thank God for the internet. <laughs> it made it so much easier getting more and more of it up and uh, being able to attract the family that way. And a lot of the uh, states and the provinces have vital stats up now. It depends on where you're at. And uh, if you're looking, let's say, Nova Scotia or BC, the dates of birth release and dates of death release and vary from one place to the next. But you can track people now quite easily with what census is open. In Canada, it's just up to 1921. Hopefully, in two, maybe three more years, it'll be 1931 for us. And uh, in the States, it's up to 1940. So you can really well track a family, as long as you have a clue about where they could be. <laughs> and uh, it helps if they have a really odd name. Finding, let's say, my family, my father's family, the Dorises, all I have to worry is about is dropping the apostrophe, you know, not dropping it. Um, Smith and Jones is, I, I really don't like them. <laughs> I bet I bet a lot of researchers aren't fond of them. <laughs> Here in the Yukon, uh, a lot of your research has come from the local newspapers, or a lot, of, I guess, a lot of your clues into their everyday life. Oh, the early newspapers are uh, gossip columns. <laughs> you sneezed, and you got put in the, uh, in the newspaper's uh, social column very easily. <laughs> and that's how you could kind of get a sense of how respected this family was. Yeah, and uh, how mobile they were, what they were doing. If they moved around a lot, they would um, uh, be caught eventually, and it would be mentioned. So why why um, this family? What what uh, I guess you started. You saw the photo of Sam. Yeah. Uh, that was what started this journey for you. Yeah. And it's just curiosity on my part, especially with Sam. And I heard tales of Lucille Hunter when I first came up in the nineties, but I didn't know the woman. I saw a couple of pictures of her, and uh, eventually I got to the point where I was getting more curious and more people were interested in talking to me about her. That helps a great deal. Like Facebook, if you get into the right Facebook page, that helps. And uh, that 
I've been trying to use in the last little while to get the human context, not the print. Like I can get a lot from uh, government records and from manuscripts, but the people who grew up here and dealt with them or grant you the geese were way out of my timeline for this uh, this part of the century but uh there are a lot of people who knew the chinese the asians they knew the blacks who were living in the territory in the 60s and 70s and they'll speak about them if you ask them the agi family didn't stay in the yukon so obviously that's more challenging because you yeah. probably can't find any descendants of any people who knew them are yeah. you hoping through your research you might come across some of their living descendants elsewhere in the country or in the U.S.? My fingers are crossed. Uh, Helen, we can't track. We tracked all the other members of the family. We have death detail for them. But Helen, she kind of like disappears in 1940. Her father dies. She's in uh, Seattle for the death. But I can't track her anywhere else. There may have been a grandson in 1920, there was a young boy listed in the 1920 census, and I can't track him anywhere. But the detail on both of them may not been open yet, uh, open up yet. Like the 1950 census would be good for Helen; it might give you a good idea. 1931 census in Canada uh, might give you an idea if she went back. So that kind of information just isn't available yet. And if nobody writes about them or puts something up, eventually we'll be putting the information up on our website. We do get comments back from people. And uh, some people, they'll re-identify a photo. And then we work with that and see what we can do. But it does take a lot of time to do it. So where are you at with the Agui family in your research? Uh, do you have more to do? I'm more or less finished what what I could do with them easily, find them anymore on the Internet. I don't think so. We'll just have to see what kind of response we get from outside or from the local people. If somebody has an old photo album around and they could uh, have notes in it or something, that would help a great deal. Do you feel like you have gotten to know the Aggie family? Has this research become important to you? Uh, yes, I'd love to finish them off, but... Uh, time will tell if I can actually uh, dot and dot my I's and cross my T's and, and have a good idea if there's anybody left around. Cameras and digital cameras weren't around, but in the 20s and 30s, it would have been a little brownie and a negative and whatever, and uh, they would have built up their own family history. It'd be nice if somebody kept the, kept the uh, personal effects. And it would be so nice to have a diary or even correspondence between the family members. It would tell you a lot about what they were talking and thinking. Why do you think it's important for people to know more about the Aggies today? I personally think it's just gives you a feel for the place. I mean, there's so much transient, even nowadays, people come up for a few years and leave. Those of us who stay for longer than that, unless you get really into the, fa uh, the community history, you're not aware of it. It took me a while to get used to dealing with that one. I grew up in the Maritimes. I didn't move and up here until 1990, and it took me a good five years, ten years, before I got a feel for the community. And this one is one way of giving people uh, an idea of what the community was like. 
Thank you so much for coming in and uh, telling us all about it today. And thank you for having me. That's it for this episode of Yukon North of Ordinary, the podcast. Please share this episode and leave us a review. It really helps. Subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe to our print magazine by going to northofordinary.com. While you're there, check out Yukon North of Ordinary merchandise. For a full product line, visit the Bricks and Mortar store in Whitehorse, located on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Steel Street across from City Hall. There's a great selection of hats, clothing, stickers, and more. Do you have something to say about this episode? We'd love to hear from you. Find us on social media at North of Ordinary. You can also contact me, Karen McCall, with feedback or story ideas. My email is editor at northofordinary.com. Thanks to the whole team at North of Ordinary Media. Our podcast artwork is by art director Manu Kegenhoff. Our music is by Head Candy and tribeofnoise.com. Thanks for listening. We have another episode coming out next week. I hope you listen in. Thank you.